Thanks, Nate. Um, Nate's kind of a, an example of what Christianity should be about for me. He lives over in Portland, has a church over there, is married, and just about once a month drives over just to, to be a part of worship with Antioch and to play, and um, it's just kind of the coolest thing. Uh, he's moving over to, to Hawaii soon, so I think we get to see him one more time. Um, but it's kind of what it's supposed to be about a little bit. Uh, forgive me, this, this morning it's a little strange. We got What we're talking about is... Um, is uh, the question, is the God of the Old Testament a God of love? Is the God of the Old Testament a God of love? And, and just this week, it's been kind of crazy, and then yesterday, kind of even more crazy. And, and uh, so I'm laying awake in bed last night and just wrestling, and Tamara's frustrated with me and, and just what, what gives. And I'm just like, I just don't know how to talk about these things without sounding flippant. You know, because the more I wrestle with it, the more it just really feels paradoxical and, and there's mysteries there. And, and so a saying that I've always had is that, that life is messy and God is mysterious and that the rationality that God gave us, we try and make sense of life to point. We, we want to sanitize and get it cleaner and more orderly and more structured and more organized and more sensical than what it's ever going to be. And when it's not that way, we... we then look at God and we're confused because there's just this tension and we get less answers than we always want. I mean, how many questions have you, you asked in prayer over the last 10, 20 years? How many answers have you gotten? You know, God is more mysterious than we would make him to be. Um, and it's, so, it's, so it's hard. So when you talk about something like the God of the Old Testament, is, is that God really a loving God? And what about genocide? And what about, you know, these little things things that seem to happen here and there that just seem really harsh or really difficult to get your mind wrapped around, um, how, how do you tackle that with, without doing a, um, an injustice to the felt quality of it? I mean, it's messy and, it's, it, and God's mysterious. And so cliches and kind of bumper sticker answers and pat answers, they, I think they'll feel a little hollow. But at the same time, these are like the most pressing questions that we have as, as humans, um, is our pain and, and our felt experience and our relationships and the, the ups and the downs and, and even facing death and, and those kinds of things. And, and what do we do with that? And so there's this tension between having to be able to talk about it, um, yet it's a mysterious thing and it's a difficult thing. Yesterday, I, I got an email in the morning and then a phone call at 9 o'clock at night from two of my best friends in this church who had lost someone in their immediate family um, yesterday. And it's like the first time that's happened in like a long time in this church. And so it was just kind of crazy. And I'm thinking, how am I supposed to go just talk about, oh, God's just a loving God, trust me. Or, oh, it says he's a loving God, so hey, that should be good enough. And, and yet there's these questions and these these. <laughs> these these difficulties. And so it's hard. Now, I don't know how I'm going to quite do it. I, I know what the pat answer is, and I don't think it's a human one. I think it's a divinely inspired one. It's, I think, Paul's answer in, um, in 2 Corinthians when he talks about the pain that he had in his life and the suffering he had in his life and how God had not answered his prayer, not told him why he had this pain, this nagging thing going on physically and 
And doesn't God know that, you know, hey, I'm a missionary and it, I'd be a lot more effective if you kind of optimize the system here? Help me out just a little bit. You know, doesn't God know that? And Paul kind of prayed a couple times for this. And, and finally he just says, okay, God could have taken it away. God hasn't taken it away. God has a purpose for it. And he kind of concludes this. He goes, when I am weak, I am strong. And so if there's a, an answer, I think it's out of Scripture. And it's just simply that, that the essence of really what faith is about, trust, just, just this relationship with God the quality of it, that the, the truest ring comes in the midst of our suffering and in our pain. Um, I've got three daughters and, and one on the way, so I, I say a lot of times that I have three and a half kids. Um, you know, and the relationship with me and one of my daughters is never truer than when they crawl up into my lap crying. Their need and their desire for me, in some sense, is never so great. Their, their looking to me for strength is, is never greater than when they crawl up into my lap when they're crying. And, and I think Paul understood that, that it's a lot like that. That when we're weak, somehow that's the thing that's going to make our faith strong. There's a quote from John Piper that one of our elders shared at an elder meeting this week. And boy, it sounds hollow. But I think there's some truth in there, so I just want to preface it with that, and then I'm going to pray, and, and let's just try and tackle a few things. And, and we're not going to answer all the questions, but I think we're just going to maybe spotlight what, what the issue is. And then what we're going to do the next two weeks is we're going to talk specifically about the problem of pain. So this question of, is the God of the Old Testament a God of love, is kind of a preface to spending two weeks on the whole idea of what do we do with pain and suffering and evil in the world. But here's the quote from John Piper, and it says this, There's more of God's glory to be seen and savored through suffering than through self-serving escape. There's more of God's glory to be seen and savored through suffering. And I think maybe it's that same idea of when we're weak, then we're strong. When we're crying children and crawling up into the lap of, of a father, there's more of the essence of fatherhood there than anywhere else. Anyways, let's pray and then we're going to dive in. Father, uh, I, I do just pray that I think the most meaningful thing this morning, somebody hearing from you, somebody feeling that you are present and that you care, that you are a God of love, uh, that it wouldn't be answers, that it would just be experience almost that, that's going to be the most meaningful. And I just pray that you would um, pour out your spirit on us now that you'd somehow move through this time and that you would bring peace. You don't always promise that you're going to change circumstances, but you do promise peace. And I just pray that you'd bring peace to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I, uh, in my 20s, it was, it was a bad thing. Um, it was way too, I was before Tamara. Um, she doesn't like me to tell the story, but I'll just tell it anyways. Um, she was here, she would stand up and yell at me and say, don't, she might be here. Anyways, if you hear her yell, then I'm right. But she doesn't like me to tell a story because um, it makes me look really bad. <laughs> um, but when I left the church down in Whittier, they had a going away party for me and, and staff of about 20. And Tam and I had been married for three, three and a half years. And so they had this launch and it's a going away party 
and they sat us around those kind of churchy church tables when you have a church building, and we're in that kind of horseshoe, and they, they started going around and talking about um, me, <laughs> and it was amazing, about 10 or 11 people in a row, kind of their comment was, gee, I really didn't like you, Ken, I thought you were arrogant, and I thought you were like, you know, da-da-da-da-da, you know, but Tamara's really done amazing work with you, and and it was like that kind of group think thing because it, the dominoes just started falling and the next person's like, oh, yeah, you know, I was kind of the same way, Ken. Just thought you were a jerk. And, you know, and I was just like sitting there just feeling really beat up and glad I married Tamara because they all mentioned her. Um, that's why she doesn't like me to tell that story. Uh, but in my 20s, yeah, I, I think I just was full of passion and full of energy and and full of a lot more answers than I think I am now. Having kids kind of does that to you. Um, I told you what to do once. How come you're not doing it? And then you realize your helplessness, um, and it matures you. Uh, but so anyways, I had a wise lady come to me and kind of pull me aside, and I was probably about 26 at the time. She said, Ken, all sentences that begin with all women are not true. All sentences that begin with all women are not true. And what she was saying was, Ken, I hear you making some statements like all women, da-da-da-da-da. And, and she was pointing out that you're just way too ignorant to be making a generalization and putting all women in a box or in a category. Uh, and I think there's some real wisdom to what she was saying. She knew a lot more about the category or species called woman. Um, than I knew. And since I knew so little, I wasn't even married yet, um, since I knew so little, it was easy for me to just lump it all together. Her knowing more, there's a lot more different shades and, and variations. And the more you know, the more complex things become. We're looking for office space. So I, I spent a couple hours with a guy who's helping us look for office space this week. Um, wonderful guy, knows his craft. He knows real estate, knows all this stuff. And so I just thought it was as simple as you offer some money, they either take it or they don't, and that's really all there's you know, going on there, spit in the hand, you know. Um, and we sat there for a half hour plus, and, and after a while, my eyes glazed over because he's talking about all these little categories and nuances, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And, and something so simple as an agreement about, like, renting a space, to me, seems so simple when you're around a guy that that's his field and he knows what's going on, it all of a sudden gets so much more complex. And I think that's true of everything. You, you talk to an artist and it's no longer good painting, bad painting. It's color balance and tone and mediums and all sorts of things. And it doesn't matter what the topic is, people that know what's going on, it begins to get more complex. Does that make sense? There's levels of complexity. And when we don't know those levels of complexity, when there's an absence of our ability to interact with that complexity, we fall into this sentence that another friend of mine uses a lot, and he says this, absence of communication. In the absence of communication, people believe the worst. In the absence of communication, people believe the worst. The less we talk, the more you're going to assume or ascribe bad motives to me, or vice versa. The less we interact, the more I'm going to create a mental picture that doesn't really fit reality. Um, that's just kind of how it works. 
And we don't understand what's going on with God all the time. It's mystery. And we begin to construct frustrations and confusions and ideas and ascribe motives. And I think what happens is, is we just don't understand what it's like to be God. I, I talked with Aaron Walls this week. Aaron is the big guy that was up here last Sunday. And he's a policeman in Redmond. And I was telling him a little bit about this Sunday's talk and what we were talking about, the justice of God and, you know, as the God of the Old Testament, a loving God. And, and he just looked me dead in the eye and goes, he goes, you know, since I became a cop, I have no problem with the justice of God. Because I have no problem with it. You begin to understand the complexities of what's going on with the difficulties of life and just all these other things. And you realize you just can't be all nice all the time. That there has to be different things going on. He just looked me dead in the eye and says, I have no problem with the justice of God. I have no problem with it. And so there's this idea of where we need to somehow understand a little bit more the complexity of God and the complexity of what's going on. And I think C.S. Lewis understood this as well as anyone. He writes into children's novels, his Chronicles of Narnia. Um, the character Aslan, that's kind of the Christ figure, he writes into all of these kinds of book and it, books, um, that, you know, it's a set of books, and through each of them this thread comes through that, it, that, that Aslan is not a tame lion, that he's not a tame lion. He's asked at, at one point, are you safe? Am I safe? No, but good. It's not safe, but good, and, and we don't think in terms of those categories, right? We think safe means good. We don't think it could be one and not the other, and, and it's complex. It's complex. I, I uh, had an answer to prayer this week. What's cool about it was it was a two-year-old prayer. I mean, have you ever had that happen? My wife and I started a long time ago when we first got married praying very, very, very specifically. Because if you don't believe there's a God that's going to answer prayer... You're going to be real lazy in your prayers, and you're just going to pray kind of out of your emotions and kind of vagaries, and, and then you're not even going to remember what you're praying, and you're just going to move through life that way. If you really believe that God's going to hear and answer your prayers, you're going to be very clear in your communication, right? A kid that um, believes in Santa Claus doesn't just give like a general list, man. They dial it out like what color and like everything. You know what I'm saying? And so we disciplined ourselves to start praying very specifically. I'm not the guy that prays on the phone with you. It's just not my thing. I don't even always pray like when people leave a, an appointment in my office. I don't know. It's just not my thing always. But getting alone and praying very specifically is my thing. And so what was cool is this week I had an answer to a two-year-old prayer. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, it's so cool that I actually knew that prayer got answered because it was a specific prayer. And if I had never made it specific, God may have answered it, but I would have never known about it. Does that make sense? And I think as we're about to dive in here, I want you guys to turn to Luke. So we're about to dive in. I think we have to, we have to realize that with this complexity kind of issue, that the more we understand specifically about what's going on with God and how He interacts with us, the more we can shade it in and call it out and categorize, it's not going to solve everything, but it's going to help us just in our wisdom or our maturity. And I think that's the godly people in Scripture, the examples we've got, always put that energy into their relationship with God. I mean, you look at 
the Psalms and David and just the wrestling with God. It wasn't just vague. I mean, the guy just took it to God and wrestled with it. But here's Luke 13. And here's the interesting thing. It's going to talk a little bit about difficulty and pain, just to preface it. And I think what happens is that even the people in Jesus' day kind of had this sense of God's unpredictable. And boy, he's against those people and for these people and all this other stuff. And what usually begins to happen is you put yourself on God's team. And so, yay God, when we're the ones fighting the enemy and God's on our side. And then when you look at somebody and they they go down in flames, it's like, ha-ha, you must have been out of God's love. God's against you. So I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy. I'm good, you're evil. And we begin to kind of put life in these black and white terms. And I think in Jesus' day, they kind of did it too, because this whole idea that God could love everybody or just be a loving God, God is love, I think it's really hard. It's, is God loving to me is the question. And if God is loving to me and you're my enemy, then God can't be loving to you. Or if, if God's blessing me and cursing you, then he must love me and not love you. And that's kind of very infantile, isn't it? Like it's like a little kid that just thinks love comes with like presents or spending money on him. And that's, we equate those two. And I think that's going on in Jesus' day too. And so they come to him and Jesus starts talking and he starts talking about these Galileans. And so starting in uh, verse 2 here, Jesus answers, he says, Do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way, piloted mixed blood like into their sacrifices? They'd suffered, been persecuted. And Jesus says, Do you think that they were worse people, bad people, that they're now the, the bad guys on the other side and you're the good guys because they suffered that way and you didn't? And so Jesus is getting at their like, kind of limited understanding of the world he says, I tell you no. And he turns it on them. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he changes the subject altogether. And he says, what about those 18 people? So he's taking something off of like CNN.com, like a news flash, right? Something current to them. What about those 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? He said, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Listen to where he goes. I've got it up here on the screen. He kind of gives this little parable, and he says this. A man had a fig tree. He planted it in his vineyard, and he went away to look for fruit on it. But he did not find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why Why should I use it up, take up the good soil? And the guy responds, Sir... Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. Uh, Then cut it down. You know, just give me one more chance to try and make this thing fruitful. And you see Jesus coming up with a parable that represents a lot of what happened in the Old Testament of God having 
something that owes him something, that it was designed for something, there's a purpose behind it. And he's long-suffering and he's patient and he waits generations and generations, giving it all the chances to turn around, to do what it ought to do before he finally acts. And, and here Jesus kind of picks up on that. And so the basic idea is it's not about your circumstances, it's about you. And it's not about the temporal stuff, it's about the eternal. And Jesus takes these questions of the mysteries and complexities of God and, and the pain and the suffering, and he says, you know what, that's circumstances, that's really what, what life is not about. Life is about you, and how are you going to handle those? How are you going to respond? How are you going to deal in it? Are you going to follow God? Are you going to be obedient? Are you going to put your head down and try and bear fruit? One of the things, I, I'm not a big guy about end times. People always ask me, what do you think about end times? And I'm like, I, I think we shouldn't spend so much time talking about it. You know, I'm like alone that way, so don't quote me on it. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I think Jesus' whole point was put your head down, work hard, and then if he comes back, he'll tap you on the shoulder and tell you it's okay, you can quit now. And we're all like taking this like 15,000 million hour lunch break where we keep talking about like end times and we never get back to work. And the whole focus was Jesus saying, I don't even know when, I don't know the times. You just put your head down and, and work. And I think that's the thing that goes on with suffering here sometimes. Or is God a good, good God or not? Or how do I feel about God? And we kind of take a, a lunch break, and that's now the topic of conversation. And we'll talk and talk and talk. And are those guys bad? Because look at the way their life is going. And my life must be good because my 401k is going up. And we begin to analyze this good guy, bad guy, God blessing, not blessing. And I think the answer here again is, look, that stuff isn't what matters. Where are you at with God? And how are you responding to whatever's in your life, the good times and the bad, because they both come. Are you holding on? Are you having faith that God really has a plan in all this? Are you trusting him? Are you working to bear fruit? Are you doing what he's called you to do? Your calling, your calling is what ought to drive your mental state, not your circumstances. When I'm going to the store, it's not the guy that cuts me off, it's not the red light, it's not the detour that's driving me. It's where I'm going and why I'm going there. And I think the reason we struggle with suffering so much is we don't have a sense of where we're going. And so it's like when you're on vacation, I get really mad when vacations don't go right. Because my idea of a vacation is just the absence of, of pain and suffering. For just a brief window in time, you know. And so when the kids scream too loud, you're violating vacation rule number one, prime, the prime directive. Um, and then there's no point for it. it. It's just ruining and stepping on my vacation. And it's just angst and anger and frustration and and why, God, you know, um, my vacation this last summer was like 118 degrees in San Diego. Um, and God and I talked a lot about that. <laughs> Just why? Um, why, do we, why do we react that way to pain and suffering? I think one of the biggest things is we don't see ourselves as having a purpose. Your life has a purpose. I don't care what your physical state, I don't care what the pain is, I don't care what the circumstances, I care about it. I care that we hurt. I care that I have friends that are crying and, and, and suffering. I care about it. 
But what I care more about is that you and I and all of us get to stay on track with what God made us for, and we get to someday have the joy and the peace, regardless of circumstances, that we're doing what we were made to do. And so we can't have this vacation kind of life. Here's the, here's the sentence, if you want to remember a sentence. We need to learn how to trust God with our trials and our pain and our suffering. We, we talk a lot about, and I think it's easy for us to say, oh, I'm going to trust God with my finances. I'm going to trust God with my relationships. I'm going to trust God by praying to God. I'm going to trust God with the career I choose. But when it comes to the, the, the most raw and real part of, I think, human life, our suffering and our pain and our doubts and our fears, we all of a sudden pivot and we start acting differently and say, I'm not going to trust God. He, he owes me an answer. He owes it to me now. Um, this far, I'm not going to go a foot further until I have clarity. We, we do that, I think, naturally. I think it's programmed into us. And, and so that's why I think in the midst of suffering, we really learn what trust is about. We really learn what faith is about when, it, when we come to that point where we're like, I don't have it in me to go further. Yet somehow, someway, we have to go further and trust God. So we need to learn to trust God with our trials, our pain, and our suffering. Um, there's an analogy, there's an analogy in the Bible of God being a potter and we're like clay. And he's molding us and he's shaping us and he's doing what he wants with us and And we have to sometimes yield our conception of what life ought to be like or where we ought to be going and trust that God, who is orchestrating these things, somehow, some way, has a purpose that we can go along with. Man, doesn't that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, does that sound hard to you? Like, I'm saying it and I'm just like, ooh. How do, we, how do we do that? I don't know. Let's at least look at the scripture here of this. We'll put it on the board. Kip told me that the font's way too small, so I'm sorry if, if you have to squint. But just here's some verses of kind of the whole idea of the potter and the clay. Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down as, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? And can the pot save the potter? He knows nothing. We don't have as much ownership of our life as we think we do. God has made us, and he has, he has a claim to it. We can't separate ourselves completely out from that. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? I had a, a hernia surgery one time. And uh, I don't know if I've told this story or not. Um, but they put you down and they, they kind of gas you up. You don't go completely under. And you have this little like um, curtain thing that you can't see, but they brought a mirror so that you could kind of see through before I went under, you know. And then they do the gas, but you're kind of awake, but you're just in la-la land and all that. Then I kind of, you don't feel anything, but I kind of woke up at one point, looked in the mirror and saw what the... This guy goes to the church, went to the church. It was when I was still single. He did it for free for me. I didn't have any money. And he's a nice guy, and he's doing all these things. And I looked in the mirror, looked at what he was doing, 
And all of a sudden, I freaked out, and I, I started yelling at him because I thought he was doing it wrong. <laughs> and, and I'm in the middle of that, and there's all these faces that look at me, and no one could respond because they were so confused. I think they'd never, like, had that happen to them before. And, uh, and so I'm laying there, and I'm looking at their faces, and there's this little voice, like, deep inside my drugged-up brain saying, Ken, just shut up. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, you know? Um, I think we do that with God sometimes, right? Does the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? You're doing it wrong. Isaiah 64, 8. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Lamentations 4, 2. How precious the sons of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. Precious. You belong to him, but he's the one that's the potter. Romans 9.21 picks up on that whole theme and says, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? But we we have to understand that God here is a disciple maker and he's shaping and he's working with individuals and he's working with nations. He's taking Moses and getting him out into the desert so that he can prepare him for a calling. And he's taking the whole nation of Israel and saying, I've got to shape you into the right kind of nation. And I'm having to discipline you almost like a father when you go into the desert and you whine and you won't stay on, on task And then I'll give you the bread or the manna from heaven. And then you complain. And I have to deal with it because if I don't deal with it there, I can never deal with it. You as a nation that's supposed to be this precious thing that's a light in the hope of all the nations. If you don't shine, all the other nations don't have any hope because they're supposed to be drawn to you because you're supposed to work a certain way, be the certain kind of nation that has me as their God. And so if I don't deal with you now and you don't shine, everybody loses out. I've got to discipline you. I've got to train you. I've got to mold you and shape you and work with you. And it has to be a part of it. And I think we see these one little instances and we go, wow, how can that be? I, my daughter's got this black eye, almost broken nose. My youngest one, her sister did it to her. Um, but it's like all gnarly now. And we were in um, Trader Joe's yesterday, and she's sitting in the little baby seat of the, the stroller. And she was about to get out like, and fall on the ground, my three-year-old. And, and I kind of like holler at her, like, get back in your seat. And she does. And then I'm standing there at the, the cart, and I look around. And I'm just like, man, this isn't good, you know, because people take just a slice of time and then they're like, oh, I know what's going on here. You know, pastor beats his kid, you know, and, and, and I'm like, wow, I think we do that to God. We don't time lapse it. We don't, we don't see the progression in time. And then we zero in on one thing too. And we don't see all the other things going on. And we draw conclusions. How in the world can God be a loving God? Look at the pain in my friend's life or my small group or my my own family. Look at what's happening. How can he be a loving God? And we we can't step back and get the progression. We had a cool clip of of, uh, planet Earth that shows like time lapse, you know. And we kind of have to give God the benefit of the doubt that he's got the whole time lapse thing going on. And we dial into just one little moment and one set of circumstances and we try and extrapolate out just like my daughter. And it's tough. It's tough to to give God that benefit of the doubt because it's our felt, real, organic 
earthy, raw feelings we're dealing with. So we have to learn to trust God with our doubts. We have to learn to trust God with our pain and with our suffering. You know what I realized is when people ask the question, uh, is the God of the Old Testament a loving God? They're usually always comparing him to Jesus. Jesus is loving. God of the Old Testament isn't. And you know what I began to realize is we think that because we can see Jesus. Remember the absence of, in the absence of communication, we assume the worst? Well, Jesus was right there, and we saw him touch people, and we saw him express that love, and, and we saw him be tender, and we go, ooh, I like that. I can, I can see from that that you are a loving person. And then we look to the Old Testament, and because everything's time-lapsed and blown out like that, and it's God working through uh, circumstances and world events and events in people's lives and, and all these kinds of abstract things, we don't always see that, that touch and that tenderness, and, and we go, oh, I, don't, I like this one better than this one. And so when you read some of the prophets who are speaking for God, you see this emotion on God's part where he's so perplexed and so frustrated. And sometimes he's pleading with his people and saying, don't you get it? And I think we just, we just don't dig deep enough. We don't work hard enough. We don't push beyond the confusion or the doubts or the abstractions. And we have to do that if we're going to trust God with our pain. You know, in politics, it's really interesting. I'm going to tell you who you should vote for. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. I have no idea. Um, but here's the thing in the politics I've been watching. Everybody's trying to make sure that they paint themselves as their own man. Right? Man, nobody influences what that person does. He's his own man. That's who I want to vote for. And so both people are trying to position themselves as unaffected by what people want them to do, and they're their own man. And I think the reason we resonate with Jesus is because we look at Jesus and we go, Jesus is his own man. Here's what's funny, though. We go to the God of the Old Testament, and if ever there was somebody that was his own man, it's the God of the Old Testament. And instead of going, wow, he's a maverick, he's, he's his own man, he does what's right, doesn't do what people want him to do, he's legit, and get accepted. we don't. I think the reason we don't is because he's a father and we're children. And there's something I'm learning about fatherhood. You never win. You never win. You never win. And God is a father. He's a disciple maker. He's the coach. He's not our personal manager. He's the one that's above us, big enough to do the difficult things and to work in our life, to work in nations, to work in this world. And he's never going to win. We're always going to assume the worst. But he's his own man. Let's close by just looking at Isaiah 65, 6 through 12. So if you'll turn to Isaiah, it's, it's right to the right of Psalms and Proverbs. In the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 65, 6 through 12. This is what Isaiah says. It 
See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your fathers, says the Lord. Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defiled me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment of their former deeds. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and men say, don't destroy it, there is yet some good in it. So will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I'll bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will, there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Echor a resting place for herbs, for my people will seek me. And um, and we've got to be able to somehow grab hold of the promise that God gives to Israel, and He always gives to us, that in the middle of all of this, um, He will bring good out of every situation, that His, His ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah goes on to say that. It says, his ways are higher than our ways, and we can't understand all that complexity, and we can't always grasp hold of it, and we have to somehow trust that he's going to bring good and restore us in, in that time, whenever that time is, even if it's heaven. And so when the question comes, is the God of the Old Testament a God of love? I guess this is my conclusion. I don't have an answer to it other than this. I think God... Uh, it's a little bit tougher of a job than I once realized. And I think love is a little bit more complex than I once realized. C.S. Lewis says this, We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, Blessed are they that mourn. It's going to be a part of real life, just the pain and the trials and the suffering. But whether we trust God with it or not, and that sounds oh so ridiculously cliche, and here's where it all resolves for me. I used to be um, frustrated with Jesus because I thought he cried right before he died. It doesn't really say that he cried, I don't think. It says that he was just filled with emotion. And he went and he kneeled and he was face down and he prayed to God and he was in anguish. Okay, And he says, God, take this away from me. And I felt like Jesus cried there. He says, take this away from me if you can. But if you can't, not your will, um, not my will, but yours be done. I'll, I'll yield to whatever you've got. And I used to just think, man, Jesus, Jesus should have just been more stoic. I mean, um, William Wallace didn't cry. And like he didn't show anguish when he was heading to his death. And if Jesus was like really cool, you know, and I used to feel that way. And I think what I'm beginning to realize is that's the answer to all of it for me. I can't give you a bumper sticker that's going to make it all make sense or suffering or pain or difficulty or kind of this confusion with God. But the fact that Jesus like, was right there in the middle of it, completely anguished and just uh, overwhelmed by it. Like, at least I can rest in that and say there's an example I can follow. Like, I, I'm not alone. I'm not on an island. I'm not the only one. I can identify with Jesus in his sufferings, and Paul talks about that. We can share in the sufferings of Christ. I can identify with him there, and I think in some sense I'm pointed to the right resolution that even if I don't understand, God, even if it's mysterious, if it's confusing to me, you've got a purpose, not my will, 
but yours be done. I will yield to you even with the most dearest of things, my life, my circumstances. I will trust you, not just with my finances, not just with my career choice or where to go for vacation or whatever else we trust God with. God, I will trust you with my pain. In anguish, on my face, I will let you know how I feel. But at the end of the day, I'll cling to one thing, and it's going to be trust, it's going to be faith, that you know better than I do. It's a little more complex. Your ways are higher than mine, but you do care. You are a loving God. You do have a purpose, and we can rest there. Let's pray. Father, as we head into two more weeks just of looking at the problem of pain, and we start talking about Job and Habakkuk and just the very real things that the people have always gone through in faith, the prophets, I just pray that you would fill us all with compassion just for pain and suffering, that pain in Bend, pain in our small group, pain in Africa or Asia or South America, just wherever it is, that you would fill us with compassion like Jonathan was talking about and give us the ability to act on that. Because I know in some sense we are your face to this world and if we don't care about them, how are they going to know that you care? And so just even in the midst of our own personal doubts and difficulties, just give us the ability, Father, to love well. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.